the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Plan Your Estate Radio with your host, San Jose Estate Planning Attorney Bob Bergman. Bob's been practicing law for over 30 years and is certified by the State Bar of California as a legal specialist in estate planning trust and probate law. Bob is here to help you set your house in order with valuable insights you can use today to prepare a better tomorrow for your loved ones. And now your host for Plan Your Estate Radio, Attorney Bob Bergman. Afternoon, Bay Area. State Planning Attorney Bob Bergman here, broadcasting from my office in San Jose, California. I've uh, been on the air for, gosh, I think about almost three and a half years now, and it's hard to believe it's been that long, but when I look back, I'm very grateful to be on the air and grateful to be on the mend. Um, I want to, uh, today's show, I want to kind of follow my usual format which is uh, questions and comments from around this great state of California. Uh, I will also take calls if somebody would like to call in with a question. Uh, That number is 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. If you'd like to call in and ask me a question on the air, I'll be happy to take that as long as it's in my field. Uh, my area of expertise, as they say. But let's dive right into the show today with the first question and comment out of Los Angeles, California. Okay, this person says, My sister is the trustee for our recently deceased parents' estate. Uh, After my last parent passed, my sister sent me a copy of a list of items in my mother's handwriting with the words debt at the top of each page. My sister wants to deduct $58,000 from the estate before she'll distribute the funds equally between the two of us. I'd never seen the list before. It had obvious errors and many unclear items. The last entry was just over four years before my mother passed away. I told my sister the statute of limitations makes that list and, quote, debt a moot point. Am I right? Well, it's an excellent question. Um, Clearly, if a list of items had been put into the estate plan with a direction that, that those be deducted from the share of someone, which, by the way, actually only means, in the case of two beneficiaries, only really half of it gets deducted from the share, <clears throat> then uh, then it wouldn't matter about a statute of limitations because it's a specific direction to, uh, to uh, have these debts charged against that particular beneficiary and uh, at least presumably reduce that beneficiary's share by the amount of that debt. 
But here, though, I think this person might very well be right. Just something in handwriting saying uh, debt, uh, but it's not indicated what, if anything, should be done with that. There's nothing indicates it's part of the estate plan. It's been over four years. Uh, if, in fact, they were true debts and no efforts were made to collect on them, it's likely that after four years they cannot be collected on. Um, this is where it's important that if you wanted um, a child share to be reduced in some way because of monies that you had loaned to them, that needs to be memorialized inside an estate plan because otherwise um, it may not actually be um, monies owed to the person or to the estate <clears throat> if it is uh, too late to have collected on them. So the person might actually be right here. It's uh, um, And the, the I think the sister may be a little bit out of line here, insisting I'm just going to, you know, take $58,000 and give it to myself and and then we divide everything equally. If it was truly a debt and was paid to or owed to the parent, then actually half of that debt, if paid, would come right back to the person who owed it, which means that if $58,000 is the total of the debts, it's really only half that amount that would be deducted, assuming that there was any authority to deduct it from the share of the uh, the person who owed the money. Uh, because if they paid it all back, they'd get half of it back as part of their distribution. So so really, it's um, it, uh, I think the sister it really doesn't understand how that works. <clears throat> and also, I don't know that the sister has any basis for taking or reducing the distribution by any amount without more authority than just mom's handwritten notes on some pieces of paper. Okay. Does a trustee of a will, I guess a trust, have to open a special needs trust for the beneficiary? Well, the short answer to that is, if the trust provides that monies for a disabled beneficiary are to be held in trust for that beneficiary, then the answer is yes. If, on the other hand, there's a disabled beneficiary, but there is no provision made in the trust to leave the property in a special trust for that beneficiary, what we actually call a supplemental needs trust, sometimes called a special needs trust, then there's actually no authority for the trustee to create a trust like that for a disabled beneficiary. This is one of the uh, things I try to deal with in my own trusts that I draft for people. I always have a standby supplemental needs trust for a beneficiary who turns out to be a special needs person. Um, because we can't always predict that. Sometimes families know ahead of time. Uh, my son Johnny uh, is uh, is disabled, so I make provision for Johnny that his share is going to go into a supplemental needs trust for him. But things happen to family members, and there may be other more distant family members that end up inheriting because closer family members have already died, 
uh, and you may end up with a special needs person somewhere in the list of beneficiaries that was not contemplated when the estate plan was drawn up. So having standby supplemental needs trust provisions in a trust only makes common sense. Uh, you would also want standby provisions for any beneficiary that is under age. And I typically define under age as being uh, uh, 25 years or younger. Um, I think it makes more sense to actually have assets held in trust at a minimum until someone is at least 25 years old before turning it over to them. So I have both types of standby trust provisions in the trust that I draft so that if a more distant relative who happens to be a minor somehow ends up inheriting, it's not going to trigger a guardianship for them in the court, and it also means they're not going to get the inheritance at age 18. I think most people would kind of agree that your typical 18-year-old is really not mature enough yet to uh, to handle a substantial inheritance, so I always set it up so that won't happen. And then if someone is a special needs person, I also have it set up so they um, they do not actually receive any distribution outright to them, but instead it would go into a supplemental needs trust so that it would not interfere with any government benefits that are being received. So we're coming up on the first break of our show today. When we come back after that first break, I will continue on with more Plan Your Estate Radio. If you'd like to call in to my show today, it's 800-516-1220. But that being said, if no one calls in, I'll just continue after the break with more questions and comments from around the state of California. This is attorney Bob Bergman, and I'll see you on the other side. This is Plan Your Estate Radio with San Jose estate planning attorney Bob Bergman on AM 1220 KDOW. And welcome back to the second segment of our show today. I'm going to continue with more questions and comments from around the state of California with uh, one that's out of Aptos, California. Person said, I'm experiencing frustration and getting cooperation from a co-trustee in settling out the last few brokerage account living trust. At some point, procrastination becomes indistinguishable from lack of cooperation. I'm looking for a possible legal resource to rectify this problem, as a failure to settle these accounts is costing me interest money I could be earning if these accounts were settled. What type of attorney would I hire to help me with a demand letter for presentation to a co-trustee? Well, it sounds right now like this trust does not have any attorney involved at all with it. That's just my my first take on this, is that an attorney was not brought in at the very very beginning. Um, Basically, basically, At this point, because there's an issue, you would probably want to have an attorney that specializes in estate and trust 
litigation, uh, not just a regular estate planning attorney. Uh, for example, if this situation was presented to me, I would refer the person to one or more of my local colleagues that actually handle disputes in trusts and estates. Because a letter coming from one of those attorneys is going to carry more weight than a letter coming from me because I'm not in a position in my practice to follow through on the letter if there's no response or if the response is not satisfactory. Uh, ultimately, um, this may require uh, may require the trustee who's not getting any cooperation to go to court and request that the other trustee be removed as a trustee because of the lack of cooperation and the lack of, of participation in getting things done. Uh, this is actually a, a pretty common problem. I, I have people contacting me all the time where either they have their sibling who is the trustee is just not communicating, not keeping everybody informed, is acting like because they're the trustee, uh, they're in charge of everything and they don't have to talk with anybody, they don't have to discuss things, they don't have to get permission to do anything. Uh, that's a real problem. And then when people are acting as co-trustees, all it takes is one co-trustee to either not care what's going on or just really be so busy they can't be bothered um, to cause the whole process to come to a screeching halt. I usually recommend to my clients that they only have one trustee named at a time uh, and that they advise, if it's their children, they advise their children to seek legal representation once they have to take over uh, to make sure that they're doing all the things that need to be done and doing them properly. If uh, family members don't get along, I've sometimes recommended to my clients that they consider engaging the services of a professional trustee to take over when they're gone. That could be a licensed individual fiduciary, someone licensed by the state of the Cal California to act as a fiduciary, for example, as an agent on a power of attorney, trustee of a trust, and similar things like that. Uh, or some attorneys will do that, some CPAs will do that, and then there's always trust companies <clears throat> and the trust departments of banks. Uh, when it comes to trust departments of banks, I tend to recommend that people consider local community banks, their trust departments, because they tend to be closer to the community they're in. They tend to be more warm and fuzzy in, uh, in dealing with issues because they are smaller. Um, they don't over, typically don't overwhelm their trust officers with too many accounts to handle, which it can be a real problem with a larger bank or a large trust company. Um, and it can mean that if you have a trustee that is not a beneficiary, that means the trustee has no dog in the fight and all the beneficiaries really have no basis for uh, complaining or attacking the trustee because the trustee is actually charged 
with uh, acting impartially towards all beneficiaries. So that is um, kind of how I would handle that. I, I would refer a matter like that out to a local colleague that actually deals with disputes like that. <clears throat> okay, now here, um, out of Los Angeles, after a mother who has passed, my brother listed his longtime realtor and his trust attorney after the realtor as trustees. I've been told by one source that in California, the realtor and the trust attorney cannot be trustees. There are laws prohibiting this. Please confirm and explain. There is no specific law in California that prohibits a realtor or a trust attorney to be a trustee. That being said, any person acting as a trustee is limited as to how many people they could be assisting as a trustee before they're required to be licensed by the state to act in that capacity. I think the limit might be three. So a realtor could, I think, could only be a trustee for three trusts, but could not be for four trusts. Uh, attorneys can act as trustees. Um, I've never done that. I would not do that. I don't think it's a good idea because I'm not set up for that. But the only time it may not be uh, permitted is if the realtor has a direct conflict of interest with the trust, as in the realtor is serving as the real estate agent for the trust and also acting as the trustee making the decisions. That would be pretty clear conflict of interest and uh, should not be done. But there's no specific laws prohibiting realtors or any attorneys from being trustees. Um, that's just not anything that I'm aware of. I could be wrong, but I don't think I am wrong about that. Okay, we're coming up on the mid-show break, and I just wanted to uh, share with all of you that... Um, I'm still debating whether or not to have another estate planning workshop in October. If I do, it's likely going to be towards the end of October. And in my workshop, I actually go through the planning priorities quiz, which is a mechanism I use to help people identify just what estate planning issues they may have in their family so we can actually drill down and figure out the best way to deal with those. But um, when we come back after the mid-show break, I will continue with more Plan Your Estate Radio. This is attorney Bob Bergman, and uh, we'll continue after the break. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back. Okay, I'm going to continue with more questions and comments from around the state of California here in our third segment of the show today. Uh, you can always call in if you have a question you'd like to take on the air. 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. Okay, here's someone out of Fresno, California. Says, I am the original trustee of my 1992 revocable trust. 
wanting to make some small amendments for my successor to follow. How do I most easily accomplish this? Can I simply add instructions in my own writing? Okay, um, that's kind of a simple question, but there, it could be a fairly complicated answer. If you wanted to just give some advice to your successor trustee about what you'd kind of like them to do or advice on how to handle things, you could do that with a letter, uh, kind of a letter of instructions. But if you really want to make amendments like change distributions or things like that, first thing I would say is do not write on the trust document. Let me repeat that. Do not write on the trust document. If you want to make distribution changes or things like that, I would actually recommend that you consider having an attorney draw up a proper amendment for you so that it's done with the proper formalities and becomes enforceable later on. Um, this is the kind of thing where a do-it-yourself approach could end up not working at all and could end up actually backfiring and and not having um, not actually having what you wanted to do be implemented uh, but have something maybe you changed be successfully removed I've talked about this in the past um, changes to distributions changes to legal documents some legal documents should be completely replaced like a power of attorney or advanced directive. If you want to make a change, you do a new one. You don't try to amend a power of attorney or amend an advanced health care directive. But with a trust, if you want to make a change, it should be done by amendment, and it should be done with at least the same formalities as the original trust. If you had it notarized, have the amendment notarized. Not strictly speaking necessary, but it's a better practice to do that. But this is the kind of thing I would not try to do this on my own. Well, I would because I'm an estate planning attorney. But I would not recommend that someone try to do this on their own because there's too much chance that you're going to actually end up making a mistake of some kind. And once the mistake is found out, you're probably already incapacitated or you have died which means that it's not easy to fix that mistake. It's probably going to take going to court to fix that, assuming it's even fixable at all. Okay, out of Riverside, California. Uh, five out of six beneficiaries of a trust want to buy out the sixth beneficiary in order to keep the house that's in the trust. But the sixth beneficiary refuses to be bought out. Okay. What happens if later on the beneficiary agrees to be bought out? Well, then I would say, okay, well then congratulations. Five of you can buy the interest of the sixth one, and then the five of you own the property. But then the follow-up question is, does that beneficiary have any claim to any funds out of being bought out of their share of the house and then the house gets sold? I think the simple answer to that is no. 
because if you were already paid for your interest in a property so that now there's five owners instead of six and then the five owners decide to sell the property then the original sixth owner doesn't get any share of that sale because they don't own any interest in the property anymore so I'm, I was looking at that carefully and trying to see if there was a hidden question or a hidden twist in there and I couldn't see one so I guess it's just a pretty straightforward no if you get bought out what the people do with the property after you're bought out is their own business and you don't have any claim to any of that and that seems to be pretty straightforward okay um, moving on out of San Diego person says I recently became the trustee of my mother's family trust I have an appointment Monday to get everything notarized and next Friday with the county recorder to file the paperwork just want to make sure I have all the proper paperwork needed affidavit of the death of trustee probably so yes change in ownership statement death of real property owner another important document that lets the assessor know that someone has died and also lets them generally know right up front uh, who are likely going to be the beneficiaries of that real estate preliminary change of ownership report or PCOR as we call it that would be needed quit claim deed and grant deed I'm not sure which to use quit claim or grant so I completed both I tend to go with a grant deed um, if you know clear title you have clear title a grant deed carries um, the most uh, protections for someone buying later on quit claim deed only transfers whatever ownership interest someone has uh, which may not be a hundred percent so I tend to go with a grant deed uh, and then the person asks, is this a transfer from parent to child because this is a trust if so do I need to file the parent-child exclusion for reassessment this will not be my primary residence it's being ready for sale within the next few months well it is a parent to child transfer the question is when did the parent die if the parent died before February 16th of 2021 earlier this year then it is a parent to child transfer that would qualify for an exclusion from reassessment said um, if it was the parents primary residence it's a hundred percent exclusion from reassessment if it was a rental property the parent had then you have up to a million dollars of assessed value exempt from reassessment uh, so if it was worth three million dollars now and it had a million dollar assessed value it would stay at the million dollar assessed value but if the parent died after February 16th 2021 proposition 19 will rear its ugly head because this person said it will not be the primary residence it doesn't matter if it was the residence or a rental property there will be a 100% reassessment of the real estate property taxes on that property 
the reassessment will relate back to the date of death. And if the property is then sold, the, there will be a supplemental property tax assessment issued by the assessor that covers the time period from the date of the parent's death to the date of the subsequent sale of the property. And that bill is going to be set to whoever's in charge of the property at the time, the, the trustee. So the trustee better make sure that they hold back from the proceeds of the sale enough money to pay any additional property taxes owing uh, as a result of the time that lapses between the death of the parent and the sale of the property. And depending on the value of the property, <clears throat> uh, it was a very high value and it was six months that could be several thousand dollars in additional property taxes that are owing. So um, I urge anybody, if you're in this situation, don't just sell the property, uh, gather in the proceeds and divvy everything up between the members of the family, however the trust is, because there's still a tax bill coming. You may also have an income tax bill owing for the parent, you want to make sure money set aside to pay those taxes. Um, and there could be other taxes involved. There could be other income taxes involved, depending on the property being sold. Was it sold out of the deceased parent's trust? Or was it sold out of the trust set up for the benefit of the deceased parent that was actually the other parent's property when the other parent died? no real way to know that from the question here but I just raise that as an issue um, because this is an area where if you really don't have someone assisting you it could be very possible to end up uh, owing taxes and being liable personally for the payment of those taxes because you're the person in charge of the estate or in charge of the trust. Well, as we head towards the final break of our show today and the final segment of the show, I just want to thank you all uh, who are listening uh, for listening to the show today. I'm sure some of you are actually on the freeway right now, uh, maybe heading home to start your weekend early, uh, in which case, good for you. Um, I'm looking forward to having a nice weekend with my family once I pick my children up from school in about 20 minutes or so. But uh, we'll come back after this break and finish up the show with the fourth segment of Plan Your State Radio. See you on the other side. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio. Once again, your host, Estate Planning Trust and Probate Law Specialist, Attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back to the final segment of our show today. Uh, I just have a few more of these questions and comments, and then we'll be uh, calling it a show. And let me go here with one out of Long Beach, California. Uh, the person starts by asking, am I entitled? Well, let's see what we're talking about here. Um, apparently this person is in a relationship, says we've been together 12 years. He has a living trust. 
He said he was leaving me some money. Is there any way I can find out um, how much? And also, am I entitled to what was purchased during our 12-year relationship? Well, as far as the first question, uh, the answer to that is, you can find out how much he's leaving you if you ask him and he tells you. Uh, that's pretty much, uh, pretty much the answer right there. If he doesn't want to tell you, uh, then he doesn't have to tell you because it's his trust and he's going to decide whether or not uh, he wants to let you have that information. As far as being entitled to what you purchased during your 12-year relationship, that gets uh, more fuzzy because it sounds like you're actually not married and uh, there could be real issues trying to sort out um, who paid for what. Um, you know, if if you bought everything together and you both put money in together, then are you prepared to prove that? If, if, uh, if his relatives, if his heirs step up and say, you know, oh, well, um, you know, half of everything in there belongs to him. And you say, well, no, we bought it together. Here's one of the, just one of the uh, very straightforward drawbacks of, of basically living with someone and acquiring property together, acquiring assets together, but you don't have any kind of actual agreement between you about uh, those assets and that that property. Um, then, you know, what I would tell someone at the beginning is if you're going to buy something, keep the receipt. Uh, keep the receipt for as long as you're together with this person. So if it comes to now, you know, okay, well, you're splitting up. Well, okay, I bought the TV, uh, you bought the refrigerator, all those kinds of things. That's just kind of like uh, very basic things there. But uh, really, are you entitled to keep what was purchased during the relationship? I can't really answer that question because I don't know if there's anyone else that would claim otherwise. I mean, it's very possible that no one else would would want any of the things that you purchased together during your relationship. But there's no um, there's no law that says it's automatically yours uh, because there's no formal legal relationship uh, between you and this person who set up a trust for you. Uh, good for him. Uh, good for him leaving something to you. Um, but again, like I said before, only if he's willing to share that information with you would you be able to determine whether uh, how much you're actually going to get. Okay, here, can a trustee in California sell a house and refuse to split the money between the two beneficiaries? This is out of San Diego. My sister-in-law is my late father's trustee. She sold his house without telling me. My brother is the person that told me. He's the other beneficiary. Does that amount to a breach of duty by my sister-in-law? Actually, probably is. Yes. Telling one beneficiary and not the other. Yes, there is a there is a fiduciary duty to keep people, beneficiaries, informed and to not treat beneficiaries differently. Uh, and it sounds like the sister-in-law decided she was just going to let her husband know and not tell her brother-in-law, the person who's asking these questions, um, about that. And then here, 
Also, she doesn't want to distribute the money. Instead, she wants to buy a property for she and her husband, my brother, to live in. How is that okay? It's absolutely not okay. In fact, if she were to actually take the proceeds from this sale and buy a property for she and her husband and not give the share to the to the other beneficiary, that is actually embezzlement. That could actually be a crime, a theft of his inheritance. Um, if, if this, you know, this is the kind of trustee that probably should be removed by the court. This brother might actually want to petition the court there in San Diego to have the sister-in-law removed because she is not acting in his best interest. She's acting on her own behalf. And, and, and if she goes ahead and buys a property, then this person has the right to go into that property and get his money back out of it through the courts, uh, which would be a big darn mess. And uh, I'm sure you all can appreciate how that would be a mess. Okay, got about a minute left to go. This is the shortest segment of the show. And so we're coming around the far turn, heading for the home stretch. I just wanted to, again, thank you all for listening today. Uh, hopefully you learned some things. Hopefully um, you um, have some new questions. You can always book a consultation with me at my website at lawbob, L-A-W-B-O-B dot com. Click on the book a call button. And you can book a consultation for all kinds of different legal matters involving estates and trusts. But until next week, this is estate planning attorney Bob Bergman, host of Plan Your Estate Radio, and have a great weekend. You've been listening to Plan Your Estate Radio with estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. For more information on today's program or to schedule a consultation, visit lawbob.com, L-A-W-B-O-B, lawbob.com. Or call his office in San Jose, 408-247-0444. That's 408-247-0444. And be sure to tune in next week for more Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of this station and are for informational purposes only and should not be construed to be legal, financial, or tax advice. Seek appropriate legal advice regarding your particular situation. Attorney Bob Bergman does not offer any guarantees with regard to the outcome of your legal matter. Prior results in other cases do not guarantee a similar outcome in your case. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 